welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. This is episode 12 of the Amor Mundi podcast, and the first in a three-part series taken from the Hannah Arendt Center special webinar entitled Revitalizing Democracy. The webinar was held virtually in October 2020 and featured Roger Berkowitz in conversation with David von Raybrook and Hélène Landemore. Welcome, everybody, and at least here in New York, good morning. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. And welcome to our 2020 webinar, Revitalizing Democracy, Sortition, Citizen Power, and Spaces of Freedom. This was supposed to be the opening day of a two-day conference on uh, the same topic where we had about 20 speakers lined up to talk to you about how to revitalize and reinvent democracy. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we've at this point postponed the conference. The new date is April 15th to 16th next year. It's not clear to me if that will be able to happen. Well, we hope, but we can wait and see. But we decided uh, to go ahead and and bring a few of our speakers together for a a one-day webinar. And I'm excited, A, because we have some exceptional speakers. I think some of the really most innovative and, and leading people in the field here today. And also because one of the most popular things of our conferences is people gathering together. We usually have over two days, 800, 900 people come to our conferences and they love the interactions in person. And one of the things that's become a staple of those conferences are breakout sessions where people go and meet with the speakers and are able to interact. And we're going to use the breakout function here at the end of the day. So at 1.30, the speakers will break up into breakout rooms and uh, you'll be able to pick which breakout room you wanna go into and have a more intense discussion to bring that feeling of participation and and engagement down. And I think that's gonna be very exciting. So at 1.30, that will become very possible. So we have a wonderful day, a full day. Let me explain a little bit how it's gonna go. We're gonna start in just a few minutes with our our first keynote presentation by uh, David van Raybroek. And then we'll have a conversation and then a break and then another keynote. And then again, uh, at 1.30, we will break into breakout sessions. Just a little bit about the conference from the perspective of the Hannah Arendt Center. Hannah Arendt, uh, as many of you know, wrote deeply and widely about the idea of democracy. She was deeply concerned already beginning in the 1930s and 40s in her writing about the crisis of democracy crisis of of Western and modern democracy, which she attributed to a loss of power. Power, she understood as acting in concert, where people act together. And she thought that the democracies of the Western world had become too stratified and had disempowered the citizenry in such that they had lost their sense of of coherence and, and legitimacy in a way. And while she never said don't vote, and by the way, we're about, at least in the United States, to have an election. Some people are already voting. Voting is an important part of democracy today, and nothing that should be said here today, I hope, should be construed as not voting. In fact, I want to make a very clear statement, we want you to vote. But for her, voting was not the essence of democracy. 
And in one of her later essays, she says something that I think is deeply important for what we're going to be today. And it's the quote that in many ways has structured my thinking about this idea and this conference. She writes that representative government is in crisis today because it has lost in the course of time all institutions that permitted the citizens actual participation. It has lost the institutions that have permitted actual participation by the citizens. And for those of you who've read her book on revolution, Arendt says that the greatest failure of the American constitution was that it didn't institutionalize the town halls and small government participatory bodies, the council system, she calls it, that had been so important that de Tocqueville argues is where the spirit of democracy comes out into the world. And because it didn't institutionalize it, over time, we've lost these institutions. The second part of the title is sortition. And you're going to hear a lot about sortition today. It's basically a word that means sorting. And it's used in, in technical discourse to refer to the way the Greeks and other early democracies picked their representatives. Um, I'm going to let our speakers talk more about it. But it's become more widely known really in the last five to 10 years, first through a book by Bernard Manin, who, who wrote about it in the Greek context. And then how I first came to it is that a student of mine a couple of years ago came to me and said, I want to write a senior thesis on sortition. And I said, no. And he said, why not? And I said, because I don't know what it is. I've never heard of it. And he gave me a book. Uh, he gave me two books, Bernard Manin's book and a book by David von Raybrook, uh, Against Elections. This book, uh, although I had an earlier edition of it at the time. And that's where I became interested in this question of picking or thinking about how to supplement electoral representation through lottery or a random selection. Citizen power is, I think, an Arendtian take on this idea of sortition, which is to say that it doesn't have to be about picking people who are going to govern, although Helene Landemore will talk about the need that actually people can govern, but it can also be about giving advice and giving and other mechanisms. And then this idea of spaces of freedom. Again, this is a quotation from Hannah Arendt at the end of her book on revolution, where she says that in electoral representative government, we increasingly are governed by bureaucracies and administrative states and electoral representatives that don't allow for freedom. And what we most need in the world today is to bring back what she calls spaces of freedom, people, spaces where people can interact as equals and gain the habit and responsibility and practice of self-government. And that's really what I think this conference is about. Hannah Arendt never wrote about sortition, so far as I know. It's not something she really talked about. But she was interested in this, this question, a political and moral question, about how to bring people back into government. So with that, I hope, brief introduction, I want to move on and introduce our first keynote speaker. He'll talk for about 20 minutes and then be followed by a conversation with me and him and also our second keynote speaker, Eileen Landemore. So our first speaker is David von Raybrook. Uh, he's a, a cultural historian and archaeologist and an author of an incredible array and variety of books. His first, I think first, and really exceptional book, Congo, A History, has received enormous amounts of attention and prizes. It had the Libris History Prize in 2010, the AKL Literature Prize in 2010, and the Prix Medici in 2012. His essay, A Plea for Populism, won the Jean Hondo Essay Prize in 2009 and the Flemish Cultural Prize for Criticism in 2009. 
uh, his book Against Elections, The Case for Democracy, which is the book that will in many ways be discussed today. Uh, first came out in 2014, and then a new English language edition in 2018, and it received the Henriette Roland Holst Prize. In 2014, he received the prestigious international Gudin Ganzevier Prize uh, in recognition of the entire body of his work. And that body of work is about to be expanded in an important way. He has a new book coming out, I think, in coming days called Revolusi, Indonesia and the Birth of the Modern World. Uh, which I'm very excited about. So welcome, David, and I'm going to let him take over. He'll speak for somewhere around 20 minutes, and then we'll have a conversation. And you'll, and by the way, during the conversation, you'll be able to send in questions through the link on the webinar, and I will be able to take those questions and pose them for both David and Helene. Take it away, David. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Roger, and uh, good morning. Uh, for everyone and good afternoon for people in Europe and wherever people are. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'll be speaking on the basis of a PowerPoint presentation. So without further ado, let me just launch the thing and make sure you can follow. So this is where we are. This is my starting slide. I would like to be talking about how we can strengthen democracy through the use of sortition, which is an expensive word for lottery. And I will draw from a number of experiences from Europe. In a few weeks' time, about less than two months, we will be celebrating the seven-second anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. For a second, I thought I had found a picture of that declaration with Hannah Arendt on it, but it is still Eleanor Roosevelt uh, receiving it on the day of its publication. Very important in that almost global constitution for the age of liberal democracy is Article 21 that says, the will of the people shall be the basis of the authority of government. And this will shall be expressed in periodic and genuine elections. So in that most universal of legal documents, the idea of people's sovereignty is made synonymous with elections in 48. It's a bit surprising, December 1948, exactly 200 years earlier, Montesquieu, said the very opposite. He said, the suffrage by lot is natural to democracy as that by choice is to aristocracy. Now this is a line from his Desert de l'Esprit des Lois on the, on the spirit of the laws. It's also an idea we find with Rousseau who is defending a combination of lottery with elections when the two forms of election that by vote and that by lot are mixed, the first should be used to fill places which required men of special talents, such as military office, the other when good sense, justice, and integrity are sufficient. So 200 years before Eleanor Roosevelt receiving the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, two of the leading philosophy of, the, of their age are saying that elections are not the most democratic tool. And doing so, they repeat a long tradition of thinking and of doing that goes back to classical Greece. Aristotle in his Politeia says that it is regarded as democratic that magistracies should be assigned by lot and as oligarchic or aristocratic that they should be elective. So we've been doing democracy for about 3000 years. It's only in the last 200 years that we've been doing it through elections. 
So it's interesting to study what was there before. And my idea might be that to innovate democracy, to update democracy, we should become a little bit more antique. And indeed, uh, what you see here is a keratarium from ancient Athens. This is a marble slab in which Athenian citizens put their name token next to it. You can't see it any longer because it has disappeared. There was a tube with white and black pebbles and um, pebbles were pulled out to see which row of name tokens was going to take a public office that day in a Athenian court. So it is a big difference between we are doing democracy since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or even since the last 200 years, and what was there before, the idea of lottery, the idea that public office might to a very large extent be done by people selected by lot. In ancient Athens, of the 7,000 public functions, only 100 were elected, mostly for generals and treasurers. All the other functions, for lawmakers, for judges, were all drafted by lot from the citizens. Of course, ancient Athens used a fairly limited definition of what counted to be a citizen. But this is still how we do democracy nowadays in the US in a few weeks. But this, the idea of the secret vote in a voting booth where people have to be silent to express themselves has become the dominant orthodoxy of expressing the popular sovereignty. And yet, if you look at how this model has been changing over the last couple of decades, we see quite a number of trends. And one of them is, these are figures from Europe, a dramatic drop in people being members of political parties. Most European nation states have party membership that is not going above 5%. 4% seems to be the best people can hope for. So it's quite strange to see that the leading institutions of a modern electoral democracy have at the same time acquired a limited amount of popular support in the form of membership. You also see in Europe, a steep decline in voter turnout over the past decades. In Asia, numbers are rising or stagnating somehow, but everywhere else, the global average is dropping quite dramatically. People have been fighting for the right to vote, know that many people have it, many people feel disenfranchised and dissatisfied with that form of political participation. If you look at how political parties are perceived, I'm using here figures from Transparency International from 2013. So they're a bit old. Um, I'm living nearby a hospital. You might hear the ambulance passing by. I'm speaking to you from Brussels, by the way. This is the map where in red, you'll see the countries where of all public institutions, political parties are the ones that are least trusted, less trusted than the courts, the media, scholars, etc., religious leaders, etc. To give you a number of figures, in Norway, considered to be one of the most established democracies, 41% of Norwegians think that political parties in their country are corrupt or extremely corrupt. This is Norway. In Australia, we're up to 58%. In Canada, 62%. In Germany, 65%. UK, 66%. This is before Brexit. France, 73% of French people believing that political parties are corrupt or extremely corrupt. In the US, 
76%. This is uh, under the Obama administration. Would be interesting to have the more recent figures. Brazil, 81%, Spain, 83%, India, biggest democracy in the world, 86%. Greece, recovering from the financial crisis at the time Transparency International was doing its survey, 90% of people. What does it say about the health of electoral democracies when the key players are seen to be the least trustworthy institutions of your country? This is what we're facing now. Across the West, these are figures from uh, Yasha Munk, the young voters find democracy less essential, be it in Australia, Great Britain, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, and the United States. Give you some idea uh, of big changes taking place. Now in that context, somebody like Kofi Annan has been suggesting that we need to make our democracies more inclusive to bring in the young, the poor, and minorities. An interesting idea would be to reintroduce the ancient Greek practice of selecting parliaments by lot instead of election. It's interesting to see that Kofi Annan came to that conclusion a couple of years before he passed away, whereas he, many years after he was Secretary General of the United Nations, was involved with electoral monitoring uh, across the world. So even a staunch defender of the electoral model came to realize that elections on their own might not be enough to salvage democracy or to improve democracy or to update it to the 21st century. Here are some figures from the place where I'm from, uh, speaking from Belgium. This is what Flemish, so Dutch speaking youngsters uh, were reporting a few years ago, only 17% of them would vote. A quarter of them would prefer a strong leader than a democracy. And if you look at that number in technical schools, it's 57%. So a very substantial number of people willing to do away with traditional parliamentary democracy. Now, the idea that there are complementary forms of democracy imaginable next to election is not a new one, and it's certainly not one I invented. I learned a lot from experiments and real life experiments taking place in Canada uh, a couple of years ago, when citizens assemblies were being organized to reform the electoral system. This is notoriously a topic that political parties find very hard to deal with themselves because they have to cut in their own flesh. So these are pictures from British Columbia and Ontario where a random sample of inhabitants had been drafted by lot to come together for a number of weekends over about a year's time to discuss how the electoral reform system might be introduced. What they came up with was a sensible, coherent, well thought through recommendation Unfortunately, it had to pass through a referendum and traditional politics and traditional media did everything to undermine or turn interest away from what was proposed. So although the content of the proposals or the recommendations was interesting, they were not incorporated into the legal model. But still a very interesting example of how a random sample of everyday citizens could create a breakthrough in a notoriously thorny issue of party politics. In Ireland, more successfully, is the first country in the world where the national constitution has been changed after working with a citizens assembly drafted by lot. Today, same-sex marriage and abortion are uh, no longer prohibited according to the Irish constitution. That was because of a referendum, but the referendum was the outcome of a citizens assembly bringing together about 100 citizens 
over uh, a couple of years in 2013-14 and then a few years later. So quite interesting to see that in one country, in one liberal democracy across the world, the constitution itself could be changed thanks to the input of a random sample of citizens. Australia, in the state of South Australia, organized a citizen jury on the nuclear fuel cycle. What are we going to do with nuclear waste? Are we going to use the desert to store nuclear waste away and therefore increase our economic income? Or is this not a good idea on the long term? Uh, 350 participants drafted by lot came together, invited experts themselves that they trusted to give them information to recommend, to, to recommend any outcome on this particular question. Their eventual suggestion was not to turn South Australia into the global place for nuclear storage dumping. Again, an issue that was very, very difficult to handle through traditional party politics and where a random sample of citizens could help uh, political leaders to lead. Uh, in Belgium, more of a bottom-up initiative in which I was very involved, the G1000 summit took place almost nine years ago, which was a citizen summit at the moment Belgium was without a government, it was followed by a smaller scale procedure. Over the last couple of years, an increasing number of European politicians have started to defend the idea that citizens' assemblies might be a way forward to get out of a number of particularly thorny deadlocks. Here is Gordon Brown, former Prime Minister of the UK, suggesting that a citizens' assembly might be a much better idea to deal with the Brexit deadlock rather than having a second referendum. Here is the French Bundespräsident, so the federal president of Germany, saying that, well, Germany can learn a lot from the Irish Citizens' Assembly. For instance, when it comes to strengthening democracy for the future through new forms of citizens' participation. Interesting to see that the country, which is today seen as one of the strongholds of liberal democracy through party politics and electoral procedures, even that country has reached the stage that it's starting to think about how to improve and strengthen its own democracy. These are not proposals to do away with the system as we know it. These are proposals to enrich and strengthen classical electoral democracy with sortition, with lottery, with what is technically called deliberative democracy as a complement to classical representative democracy. Here is the German coalition agreement of two years ago. This is the current sitting government saying that we will establish an expert committee to develop propositions on whether and in which shape other forms of civic participation and direct democracy may be added to our current parliamentary representative democracy. It's only a line in a text, but that text happens to be the coalition agreement of the incumbent coalition of the largest democracy in the European Union. So I don't think it's all that unimportant. When Ursula von der Leyen, a former German minister, became the president of the European Commission, the first uh, female president of the European Commission, she immediately said that she wanted European citizens to play a leading and active part in building the future of our union. And they are uh, currently investigating whether indeed using random samples of European citizens might be a valuable contribution to that pan-European discussion. Emmanuel Macron, and I'll be very brief here because Hélène Landemore will be talking 
about it much more in detail. I think Macron was the one who took this one step further. Just a few months ago, a long citizens' assembly on the climate finished with 150 citizens giving recommendations on how France should tackle climate change. And when Macron was getting their recommendations in the garden of the Elysee, the presidential palace in Paris, he said, like, I have to admit, many thought the idea was crazy and illegitimate, but we have decided to take the risk and to trust the citizens to construct a deliberative democracy, which, of course, doesn't oppose parliamentary democracy, but enriches it. I'm sure Helene has much more to say about it, but I think it's quite interesting. Ireland always seemed to be the pioneering country in terms of new democracy. Today, it seems as if France has taken over that role by this Climate Citizens Assembly. Uh, I'm sure uh, Helene will talk much more about the details about that process, but it's a very, very exciting process that was just recently finished. Here is just a few weeks ago, Wolfgang Schäuble, president of the German parliament, former finance minister, saying that everywhere in Europe and North America, we are witnessing the decreasing power of our present model, the electoral model. We have to make our parliamentary democracy future-proof. Citizens' assemblies can be an important tool. This is just a few days ago in the Dutch parliament, a majority of political parties asking the Dutch government to prepare a review of citizens' assemblies, their pros and cons in the Netherlands and abroad, in the Netherlands because they exist on local level already. And please give us your recommendation before March 21, before the upcoming elections. Extraordinary, I think. Belgium, the country from which I'm talking, this building is just about one kilometer away from where I am now, is an interesting case because you see how on regional and national level, the organization of citizens' assemblies starts to be institutionalized. About a year and a half ago, the German-speaking parliament, which is the DG, Deutsche Sprachegische Gemeinschaft, has become the first place in the world where a permanent citizens' assembly drafted by lot has become part and parcel of the political model. So next to the parliament that contains citizens that are elected, there is now a permanent citizens' council that is drafted by lot. In uh, just about a year ago, the Brussels parliament and a few weeks ago, the federal government have been opening the doors to make citizens' assemblies possible at the level of the Brussels parliament. It's a mixture, a mixture of citizens plus politicians. The federal government, which finally was installed a few weeks ago, uh, made many windows into the present coalition agreement to organize this. And just a few days ago, the Walloon parliament, which is the French-speaking parliament, has made a first step towards institutionalizing citizens' assemblies drafted by lot, much in the same way as in Brussels, combining them with politicians. So this is quite interesting, but I think the most, the most far-reaching model is the, the one in the, in the German-speaking community. This is the bill installing that permanent citizens' dialogue. I was in the German-speaking parliament of Belgium that evening, and I, I was involved with as an expert. It was moving to see that this was discussed and voted unanimously across the board by all political parties to make this possible. Now, this is Europe. Belgium is in the middle. The German-speaking part is the very, very small part towards the east. It's a tiny little piece of Belgium. This is where you can find it. It only has 76,000 inhabitants. It's nothing. It's, it's like a municipality. But it has its own government, it has its own parliament, 25 MPs, four ministers, but its powers, its political competences are comparable to the ones of Scotland. This is my alarm going. And the minister president, Pash, 
of that region said like, well, we're very small, but that's an advantage. Let us become the laboratory for the rest of Europe. Let us try something out and may other people learn from the mistakes we will certainly be making. I thought that was quite brave. I can be very, very brief on, on the model. I won't go into detail, I can do it afterwards during the discussion, but it's the world's first permanent institution for deliberative democracy. And it consists of two bodies, a short-term sortition and a long-term sortition. The first is called CA, Citizens' Assemblies. The second one is called CCs, Citizen Council. I run through it very quickly. Citizens' Assemblies are assemblies lasting between three and five months, containing between 25 and five citizens answering one particular question. The first one they did was on how are we going to improve elderly care for both patients and personnel. They do this on a regular basis, a couple of citizen assemblies throughout the year. But above them, there's a citizens council containing former members of citizen assemblies. And they are sitting there not just for a couple of weekends, they are working there for about 18 months, a year and a half. And they do agenda setting and they also have the task to follow up the citizen assembly's recommendations through parliament. There's also a permanent secretariat in the person of, in the form of one person, which is like an ombudsman for deliberative democracy. And this is the model. I'm just gonna show you the, the picture, I, I love it. This is the first group of people that was drafted by lot as a first citizens council. It has a quote on the ground saying, elections alone do not make democracy. It's a quote from Obama. You can't see it on this picture, but his name is somewhere towards the right. And so this is the first citizens council drafted by lot, permanently institutionalized in German-speaking Belgium. This is what I want to say for now. I'd be quite happy to give more details when there are any questions. And I'm very much looking forward to Helen's presentation. And I thank you for your concentration in this online modus. Thank you very much indeed. Great. Thank you so much, David. That's fantastic. And I'm going to invite Helene and I to come back and join a conversation. For those of you on the webinar, and there's about 200 of you or plus right now, so welcome. If you would like to ask questions, the way to do so is to go to the participate button on the red bar at the top <laughs> of your screen. And if you click on that participate button, you can ask a question. You have to give a name um, and an email, but I will get all those questions as will David and Helene, and we can incorporate them into our conversation. So maybe I'll just ask a first question to get us going and then, and then let Helene ask a few. But David, th thank you so much. Let's just take sort of what I take to be the two sort of opposing elephant in the room questions. One is your book, uh, against elections is subtitled The Case for Democracy. And so the first question is, do we want that much democracy, right? The whole premise of maybe the turn to electoral democracy was a fear of, you know, my neighbor next door who throws his junk out onto his yard and then he's the person who's going to go and be on the climate change panel. Do I want people like that? Do we want, don't we want, you know, people who are more educated and, and more elite, if you want to use those terms? And then the other side, you know, we talk about sortition as democratic, but isn't in a way sortition so much of the effort of sort people like you and who are in favor of sortition is about, well, they're going to meet with experts, they're going to talk to them, and it's about reaching consensus. Well, isn't politics and democratic politics in a way about dissensus, about disagreement? And isn't there almost too much of an emphasis in sortition on, on sort of 
a kind of technocratic expert driven consensus. So those would be the two sort of, I think, you know, when I, when I talk to people about this and when I think about it, those are the sort of from two sides, the sort of, wait a second, this can't be a good idea, right? And I'm just wondering how you respond to, to those two, two opposing questions. You want me to answer now, Roger, or after Helen's talk? Oh, no, you can answer now. And okay. then Helen, Helen will, will yeah. add and, and continue the conversation for a little bit. Okay. Get us started. In terms of your first question, do we want democracy? Yes. I think it's the best way to avoid violence, point. Is it okay to do this with ordinary people, with everyday citizens? Can they do it? Are they willing to do it? Will my neighbor who is throwing his garbage in my garden be involved and do I want this? You most definitely want this because uh, I'd rather have your nasty neighbor talking than throwing garbage. And I think that sortition, it's a form of like relational therapy for a nation state, right? rather than fighting and shouting, it's creating a place for respectful exchange of opinions, even emotions, ideas. And uh, a lot of the anger we see in society today actually comes from the very fact that people feel frustrated for not being heard. So uh, hearing people, giving them spaces where they can talk, learn, exchange, listen, express themselves, be themselves, is uh, probably the best way to channel a lot of dark energy, which is around now. And channeling the dark waters of liberal democracies has always been a function of intermediary organizations like newspapers or political parties, etc. But we seem to be losing some of that space. As people get more educated, as people are more online, as they see more politics unfold in front of their eyes, their need to express themselves has grown bigger. Never before has people been so educated as they are now. Never before has politics been so much part and parcel of their you know, day-to-day -day life, but still their chances to express themselves are still those from the 1950s. They can tick a box once every four or five years. That This might not be enough for an age in which information and communication has been speeding up. So, Pleading for sortition is uh, basically trying to update our democracy to get in tune with this new ecosystem. Uh, so I'm very much in favor of people who are typically described as bad or poor or incompetent or uneducated. I'm greatly in favor because everyone is the expert of his or her life. And it would be uh, very sad to miss out on that. And I don't want to take information from Helen's talk away, but Emmanuel Macron with all his intelligence thought that he did a great thing by raising taxes on, on petrol. And the result was the yellow jacket movement, which for very many months created unrest and even uh, violence in the streets of Paris and beyond. Hearing citizens, if you would have heard citizens before that, uh, he, might have, he might have understood that it was going to be very problematic and that the peripheral France and non the countryside of France was going to revolt against this measure. So that is an answer to your first question. And then a second one, it's true, in the literature on deliberative democracy, on sortition, there is a lot suggesting that, you know, you put citizens together and alle menschen werden brüder, all people becomes, uh, become brothers and sisters. Of course, this is not the case, and it should not be the case. The very essence of democracy, uh, Hannah Arendt has said it before, is conflict. 
And it's not about solving conflict. Living in a democracy is not about solving conflict. It's about learning how to live with conflict. And I think that deliberative democracy is a great tool to learn to deal with conflict and to learn what it means to draw compromise. Today's politics has become very theatrical and there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of noise on sometimes very superficial and shallow topics, whereas the deeper topics are not forcibly addressed. And so uh, I think deliberative democracy creates spaces in which differences of opinion can exist without having to divide societies into complete binary uh, groups of people. What you see at the end of processes of deliberative democracy, probably in contrast to a referendum, imagine the Brexit would have been organized through deliberative democracy than a referendum. Rather than a UK deeply divided for the next 20 years, you would have had a list of shared priorities which citizens would have come up with after exchange and discussion. So it's not about, you know, it's not about reconciliation. It's not about having to agree and believing that there is a technocratic solution to everything. It's about learning how to live with compromise. The most important political philosophers in this realm are perhaps the Rolling Stones when they say you can't always get what you want. This is what deliberative democracy teaches you. Wonderful. Thanks, David. Eline, let me invite you to ask one or two questions. And we already have a, a lot of questions coming up in the chat and we'll... Mm move to them pretty soon, but why don't you? Um, yes, yeah. I, I, I just wanted to ask you what you thought of that quote by uh, President Macron that you mentioned, deliberative democracy does not oppose parliamentary democracy, but enriches it. Because mm -hmm. I feel like uh, what I've seen, at least in the case of France, is that it, there's been a really uh, a tension between those who want to say, look, it's all happy cohabitation, we're just going to augment uh, parliamentary democracy or representative democracy with participatory slash deliberative democracy, and it's all going to be fine. And, and then those who actually are, are acknowledging, which I think is the case, an actual competition of legitimacy between these two types of uh, representatives, autocratic ones and elected ones. And um, so where do you stand on that? And uh, I assume you're, you're more on, in the second camp. And and how would you envisage the distribution of uh, labor between those two? Because, of course, I know you, you, you know, in your book, you, you are very provocative and you advocated for a full replacement of elections with sortition. But in yeah. practice, it's going to be a, a slow transition of some yeah. kind. And so how yeah. do we how do we do it and, and how do we manage this competition? And the second question I had, I can't resist asking it. Um, so I just finished watching the three series of uh, Baron Noir. I don't know how to translate it in English, black, black. Uh, Baron, I guess, uh, which is about um, sort of the micro-corrupt politician in France. And the third season ends with the confrontation between the advocates of sortition and the classic uh, elected uh, candidate, uh, electoral candidate, you know, in a, in, a, in a presidential campaign. And apparently the, the candidate, uh, sortition candidate is modeled after both you and Etienne Chouard. And it doesn't end really well for that particular candidate. And he's portrayed as a sort of Nazi or, you know, would-be tyrant. So I just wanted to know what you think of that vision mm. and, and whether you think it's um, reflective of what people think of sortition in general, whether mm. they're afraid. To, to start with your second question, Helen, I was obviously uh, happy to see that the topic of sortition, which was supposed to be very technical until a few years ago, has now become the theme of a very popular French television series. So in terms of visibility for what it is, it's a good thing. 
I haven't watched it to the very end, I have to admit. I didn't know the guy defending sortition was ending up in, as a tyrant. Uh, <laughs> well, I say that fiction can go many ways, so can democracy. Uh, but to come back to your first question, which I think is the key one, Macron saying that deliberative democracy, a citizen assembly, should not replace parliament, but should be an enrichment of it. I do agree with that. And in my book, uh, Against Elections, I've been defending the idea that today's democracies could be evolved into a system where you have two forms of representation, a bit like in the German-speaking Belgium, where you have one chamber that is voted, like we have now, that is elected, next to one chamber that is drafted by lot. In the US, you could imagine that Congress and Senate would fulfill these two functions. It's not for tomorrow yet, but to know that it does exist at one place on Earth is, is a good start. The problem is, and I think you're quite right, in what we see now is traditional models parliamentary models doing one-off experiments like Macron has done on climate change. So he brings together 150 French citizens for a couple of months. They can formulate interesting recommendations, give them to the political system, and after that, they go back home, they disappear. So all that remains of the work they have done is a report given to the powers that be. And very often these reports are welcomed and, uh, and read and then very quickly forgotten. Uh, and although Macron personally uh, has tried to say that he's going to make sure that the recommendations are going to pass through the system, that they're going to be taken up at the national level, the regional level, the European level, although he's been claiming many of these things, there is no procedure, there is no institution guaranteeing the follow-up apart from the goodwill of Macron. So everything seems to depend on his goodwill. And when we were designing the Ostbelgian model for the German-speaking part of Belgium, this was for us the big challenge. How do we make sure that the great work done by citizens during a couple of weekends is somehow stays alive after the citizens' assembly has ended? And that was for us the main reason to create this double system. You have the citizens' council, which is permanent, and the citizens' assembly, which have these short-term sortition processes. Because the permanent citizens' council, they are the ones who are going to annoy the, the parliament, they are the ones who are going to talk to the minister president, hey folks, we did this, don't forget this. And in the bill that was passed unanimously in German-speaking Belgium, politicians have to receive citizens twice after they have given their recommendation. And one year later, they have to say what they have done with it and motivate in writing why they have taken a different course. So it's making, it's not a binding advice, but it's a very, very strong recommendation, which made it for them very hard to skip and to ignore. And that's the reason why I believe that institutionalizing it is so important. If we don't institutionalize it, these will be the professionals and these people will be the ones with a hobby. I don't think that's a great idea. And in France, I'm sure you're gonna be talking about it. The participants were aware of that. The 150 French, they wanted to go home and they decided to become an organization. 125 of them have started an organization to make sure there is this permanent plug-in. I'm sure you're going to be talking about it, but it's interesting to see how even participants long for a permanent connection with the current system. But how would you, um, in your ideal system, how would you distribute the labor? Would, would the citizens a randomly selected assembly make the law or just make general proposals, set an agenda for the polity, and then parliament takes over and does the work of legislation? So basically, how do you redistribute the work that parliament is currently doing and, and which task? Because right now, the model is much more uh, one-off 
assemblies on very specific questions. They're very narrow. It could be electoral reform in uh, British yeah. Columbia. It was less narrow, but very specific yeah. and, and a sort of one-time thing in Iceland with the constitution. In France, it was very technical in some respects. I had to uh, reduce green gas emissions by 40% of the 1990s level by 2030 in the spirit of social justice. I mean, so they're not never given a sort of like broad agenda setting function the way the uh, boule, for example, in ancient Athens was, was given, had that sort of large generalist function. So is that, what's your vision for this kind of assemblies? You ask my, my vision in theory or in practice? Uh, both, I guess. Uh, right. I they they uh, might overlap or not. But. I'm not a political philosopher like you. I'm more of a political plumber. So I try to work with what's there. Within the current Belgian system, uh, the Belgian constitution does not allow citizens to have legislative power. So all bills need to be voted by, by parliaments. So the only thing they can do is give an advice, and we try to make that advice as binding as possible. I think in theory, if you look at the long term, I think it's quite possible to have a permanent citizens' assembly in the form of a Senate that would be dealing with long-term challenges which are hard to tackle through the, the current system. Climate change is a classical case because there, I think our present way of doing democracy is 200 years old, has not been devised to deal with challenges going from here to 2100. Planning ahead for a century is something is hard to do with politicians that are going to be re-elected in four years' time. It's hard to think of 2100 if you have to be thinking about 2024 as well. So I think a number of topics would be interesting to give to that uh, popular chamber, that the uh, chamber drafted by lot. But you can also imagine that there would be a sort of ping pong between the chamber that is voted and the chamber that is drafted by lot. For example, first... In the British Parliament, when, uh, when the first reading, when government sends a bill to Parliament for a first reading, nothing happens with it during the first, first reading. It's only during the second reading that parliamentarians, are, uh, parliamentarians MPs are really looking at it. It was just an idea that was given to me uh, by Graham Allen a few days ago from former UK MP. So like these six weeks between the first reading and second reading in the House of Commons would be ideal to have that citizens have their say uh, on the bill. So many, many ways of introducing citizens in the, in the lawmaking process. I have another question. How, what do you say to people? It's an objection I run into constantly and I've tried to answer it, but I'm curious about your view. What do you say to people who um, complain about the lack of accountability of a randomly selected chamber? Because the, the idea of accountability is very much tied to the notion of electoral democracy. In the current system, like in Belgium, where it's still the parliament that has to pass the bill, the accountability is with them. They are the ones who are basically taking a decision. But in, on a more theoretical level, the idea of accountability is very much related and strictly tied up with the idea of delegation. Electoral democracies are democracies that are based on the premise of delegation. I have, as a citizen, I have power one day every four years and the thing I do on that uh, singular day is to give my power away. So I delegate my power. I appoint somebody who's going to speak on my behalf for the next four or five years. And so accountability is me asking that person, like, what have you done with it? What have you done with my power? So the idea of accountability is very much linked to the idea of, uh, of giving your power away. With citizen assemblies, 
that strict division between citizen and politician is no longer there. Aristotle said it's uh, democracy is the regime of freedom and being free, it's a beautiful quote, he said like, is an alternation between governing yourself and being governed. And this is what you get in a deliberative model, in a full-blown theoretical model, a deliberative model, which doesn't exist nowhere for the time being. But there, there's the distinction between undergoing what politicians decide for you and the decision-maker himself would not be that big. So the yeah, whole idea yeah. of accountability changes. I agree partly, but I think there's still an issue because if you have 150 people making decisions on our behalf, you do want some accountability in some ways. They're not us, you know, it's not, they're, they're still, to my mind, different kinds of representatives and they have their own accountability mechanism. I think, I that's, think that's, that's how we that's, approach it. That, that they, are, they have accountability mechanisms that are different from elections, but I wouldn't say to people, look, it's fine, they're us, they're like us, so yeah. who cares about accountability? I, I think the problem is, there is a problem, there's a big problem with accountability in the present system as well. Classical oh, absolutely, it doesn't democracy. work anyway, yes. And so the, the challenge is, we should not be trying to reach heaven, we should try to avoid hell. <laughs> we have, a, I think we could say, um, questions pouring in on the uh, webinar chat. And I, I'm trying to organize them among themes, because um, there's a lot that are related. So one theme that's come up at least in four or five questions, David, is one that I'm sure you've thought a lot about, which is inclusion. So uh, someone from Australia, Rosie Barron, wrote, you know, is there a quota system that is imagined, for example, for First Nations peoples? You know, how do we think about, you know, this question that you guys have just been discussing, accountability? Is it based on, you know, well, we have 13% of African-Americans in the United States, so there should be 13% of African-Americans, and then do we have to go more granular, conservative African-Americans, liberal African-Americans, religious? I mean, how do we, you know, how do we figure out who the people are who are going to be selected? On the one hand, you say it's random. On the other hand, if it's random, it could be quite <laughs> unrepresentative. So how do we imagine that? Yeah. Uh, along the lines of this, there's questions of the fact that in Greece and other places that have used sortition, most of the people selected were people who volunteered or consented to be selected, in a way you almost have a self-selection. So in the US, we have a jury system, but you know many people get out of the jury system. And so you're gonna have in a way, a, a pre-selected group of people who wanna be involved and isn't that already biased in some way. And then there was a question about the German speaking Belgium part along these lines of, what are the rules that you've actually instituted along these lines to try and include uh, inclusion and a wide representation. Yep. So that's one group of questions on, on the yep. question of inclusion. Right, right. I think the first and the third question are very much related. Uh, how do you guarantee inclusion? The way the, it was done in the German-speaking part of Belgium, and uh, I have to say that the model, the East Belgian model, was devised by a group of 14 international experts with people coming from uh, all over the world. And inclusion was, was very much at the top of our minds when we were designing. And luckily for the bill that was passed, it has become a, a very important part. And so the citizens council and the citizen assemblies should take into account four different criteria, which are gender, age, where do you live, and level of schooling. And the bill even makes for a extra criteria, like when a particular topic is discussed that requires experience from people, say you have a topic on farming, there can be for that citizen assembly an extra criterion can be added to make sure that at least four or five farmers take place. Now, how does that lottery work? 
And how do you combine uh, random sampling with inclusion? Uh, as, you, as you said, Roger, what you basically do is a two-tier form of lottery. In the German-speaking part of Belgium, the first year was a thousand letters for a, a random sample of 24 people. A thousand letters were sent out to a random sample of a thousand addresses. Absolutely uh, random. Of that 1,000, uh, the response ratio was 11.5%. So 115 people responded positively, 125 responded negatively. So 25, 25% uh, of the people reacted, of which 11.5%, 115 out of the 1,000 reacted positively. I see you. I see you. You have a bewildered look. I'm not, I'm not a mathematician. Isn't that a 10%? Or? It's 11.5. So 11. on 1,000, on you have 11.5. I thought you uh, said 25%. Okay. And then this is the first, this is the first. So this is where you have your self-selection. And indeed, indeed, there is always a danger of self-selection because it's not compulsory. Voting in Belgium is compulsory. You have to vote. You, to, theoretically, you risk a fine if you don't vote. But in German-speaking Belgium, they decided not to make it compulsory, but to make it attractive. People get some money and they get some amenities are being taken care of. But so the first round of selection is a random sample 115 people answered positively, and then you do a second selection, a second sortition, which is called a stratified sample. And this is where you make sure you have gender equality, where you have age equality, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this is what you, this is, has become the, the classical procedure, combining a very big random sample followed by a stratified sample. Do you have bias there? Yes, you still have a form of bias, but it's a much a uh, smaller buy than, you than the one you have in the current parliamentary system. Again, it's not about reaching perfection, it's trying to improve the forms of representativity we have now. Many, many parliaments have about 97, 98% of people with college degrees, whereas this is not uh, heavily representative of society at large. So you have a much wider representation of society in your sample. And in order to make it as attractive as possible, in order to increase your diversity, paying people to sit through these sessions might be one of the, one of the ways to increase inclusion. But also making chair of childcare facilities, for instance, making clear that transport is being taken care of, food is being taken care of, and making it valuable for people. Uh, I mean, all these increases. And so it would be interesting to see in Belgium, in German-speaking part of Belgium, is this 11.5% of positive response ratio, is it going to increase as the model has become better known? I've been giving talks about this in the German-speaking part of Belgium. Elderly ladies telling me, oh, it sounds all very nice, but I will never do this. I'm just not clever enough. People telling me this. But imagine that person talking to her neighbor who has been sitting through these procedures, telling her, but it's fantastic. You can do it. Everyone can do it. I mean, that would be interesting to see. By the way, 11.5%, it seems low. A classical uh, opinion poll, I think, has between 9 and 10% of response ratio. That's one of the reasons why they're so often wrong. Uh, so an 11.5% is not that bad. Elin, do you want to add anything to this question of inclusion? Yes. Yeah, so ideally, uh, you know, it should be one person, one, one chance, and one equal chance of being selected on, on one of those uh, citizens' assemblies. So I don't know how you can do that. You could perhaps take, I don't know, social security numbers and put them at random. But in fact, we found that with modern uh, sampling techniques, you can get closer to something that's kind of fair on the descriptive sample than you could probably through 
pure sortition of the kind that the Greeks practiced. So the idea is to get as close to that as possible. And I think we see in the results that indeed it's at any rate, it's so much closer to the reality of, of the country than any elected assembly that that's, I think it's getting as close to the ideal as we can get as of now. The other big problem is the self-selection problem. Indeed, I think again, in the ideal, this would be mandatory. Uh, and I, I think we are in liberal societies where, where we're very uncomfortable with making anything mandatory or you know, coercitive, so we can work on incentives. Indeed, I think that as these things get more known, the benefits of participating get um, more familiar and advertised. As we pay people a real sort of a salary, if they're, if they're on duty for a year or more, people will want to do this. I mean, in some respects, if you're stuck in a boring job, you know, in a boring rural area, you might be very excited to go to, uh, you know, the, the capital or wherever the, the season's assembly is taking place for a couple of weekends and take part in this amazing experiment and meet people you would never meet otherwise. Because the beauty of sortition, what's really attractive about it is that it forces people to meet people across the spectrum of jobs, uh, backgrounds, uh, interests, uh, political opinions. And that's what's really exciting about it. And that's what actually, when you ask citizens what they love the most, it was that. that I saw in the French Convention for Climate, a former banker, now retired, become friends with a, a butcher. And he was joking about how she's covered in tattoos and that he would have never met her uh, in any other place. And they are great buddies. And I mean, this is and, and there's a certain magic to the setting, which maybe won't last beyond the, you know, the experiment. Who knows if they'll stay friends, but it's a place where it happens nowhere else. And I think that's what's um, sought after in this kind of experiment. That's great. Thank you. I mean, it does strike me that on the question of inclusion and legitimacy, right? I mean, you guys can add to this, but there's at least three different ways that I hear you guys saying that sortition or citizen assemblies promote legitimacy, right? One is through the stratified idea of representation, right? And I think the hardest question there is how stratified do we get, right? And I don't know if, you know, David, you said in, in Belgium, you know, it's sort of like age and gender. But I mean, you know, I could just imagine people saying, well, we want, you know, age, gender, education, we want race, we want, you know, we, I mean, we can substrate so much into different diverse populations. And especially in a country like the United States where, you know, there's so much focus on different identities. So to that, I think it depends on the size of your sample, obviously. If you get a sample of a thousand people, uh, I think you, you, you perhaps don't even need the categories, right? You don't need to essentialize people into categories that you need to track sociologically then. Mm -hmm. But given that most of the citizens' assemblies are somewhere between, I don't know, 50, 70 to 350 tops, you have to do that. And then what do you do? Well, you take the most obvious categories, gender, geography, uh, age, uh, education, things like that. But I think you can also tailor it to the topic. So for example, so, so if it's a generalist assembly, then you shouldn't tailor it because it's a generalist assembly. You want every category. So that's why I think it should be large and we should try not to essentialize people too much. Yeah. But if it's a small assembly on a specific topic, then for example, the Convention on Climate Change, one thing that they did wrong in my view is that they didn't uh, sample on opinions about climate change, right? So they ended up not making sure you had at least as many... Uh, climate septics in the sample as there was in the population. So as a result, this convention was biased in the direction of people who believed that climate change was real and uh, et cetera, et cetera. That, that actually, so I, you know, I said I was, this question was about different ways these assemblies create legitimacy and one was sort of stratified representation, mm -hmm. but the other way is, and this is, I find myself in this camp, that they seem to have the right solution 
right? So like when people talk about them, they talk about Ireland where it came up with pro-gay marriage and pro-abortion. And as you said, in France, in a way it selected for people for whatever reason who were more in favor of regulating climate than maybe the whole population. And it does strike me that part of the liberal embrace of this is that it sort of works to create more legitimacy for the liberal worldview or the liberal educated worldview. Okay, but the point I was making is precisely that, that that's not a good thing that they started off with a bias in favor of, of that kind of outcome. I think they should have started with, a, with zero bias, exactly the population's perspective on this as representing this mini public. And then we would have seen whether they would have reached the sort of outcomes they reached, which honestly, I think they would have because there was a poll done to measure the discrepancy between the proposals right. made by this assembly and the preferences of the larger population, and they were not that far off. So the reality is that the French convention wasn't even that but, terribly but, ahead of the rest of the population. But David and Helene, isn't part of the way we sell this to the politicians and to people like ourselves in that it's amazing, it sort of works, it comes up with the right, I mean, that's what I hear a lot, right? I mean, I hear that amongst people who promote sortition. It worked in Ireland, it got to the right decision. There seems to be that. I mean, does that not work or is that not? What's the danger of that? I think there is something heavily problematic with your notion of the right decision. Well, I do too. I, I'm just, I, I just hear that from people who are pro I don't know what the right decision is. In South Korea, a citizens' assembly was brought together after Fukushima, the nuclear disaster in Japan. And the question was, are we going to continue building that power plant we are building now, nuclear power plant or not? Very open-ended question. If democracy is not about answering open-ended questions, it's not a democracy. And in South Korea, citizens decided that taking into account perhaps going on with nuclear energy was a good idea. And for me, I mean, I, I wouldn't do this work which I've been doing mostly as a volunteer for the past 10 years, if it would be a sort of lousy, secret way to make liberal policies, you know, more, more, I don't want to lubricate the idea of liberal democracy through a cunning plan, which is sortition. The bonus of sortition is not necessarily because people come up with the right solution, but because it creates a sphere of deliberation where people can talk rationally, respectfully, intelligently, towards each other in terms of long-term uh, challenges, regardless of the outcome. Uh, for me, I mean, I'm not defending this uh, for, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a bit surprised by this question. It should, it's a procedure, it's not a content, so it's actually, not a program. So I think that, you know, there are theoretical reasons and empirical reasons to believe that you will be more likely to reach the right answer that way. That's, that's my view um, as an epistemic Democrat, but I'm not saying that one, the right answer would be always liberal. And I'm not saying either that you will reach it all the time. So there will be mistakes that are going to be made the same way that parliaments make mistakes all the time. Carbon tax in France was, I think, a huge mistake, cost dearly to the politicians and, and the system and uh, mm -hmm. furthered, you know, uh, more social unrest, more frustration, uh, less progress. Uh, so I think we can speak of mistakes and correct uh, solutions. They're very imperfect, of course, but for a given country, for a given set of values, for a specific question that asks of people. But it's not going to always track liberal solutions or solutions on the left. To give you an example from South Korea, actually, a couple of years ago, there were um, deliberative polls, I think, conducted on what to do about uh, five nuclear plants. 
and the president had said he wanted them closed. Well, after talking about the economic impact of such a decision, the citizens actually concluded that they wanted to continue operating them, uh, but postpone the, the building, the construction of, uh, of the fifth one or something like that. I probably have the details a little wrong, but what I remember is that contrary to what you, know, you, you, you say, they would necessarily go in, in the sort of left-wing sort of uh, direction of closing all the nuclear plants. No, the, the citizens were very realistic about the human and, and economic costs of, of closing the nuclear plants and they decided against it. So it doesn't always go the way you think. So there are a couple of questions that I'm going to group around the general sense of, is this movement a kind of over-promising that will lead to a kind of playground for people? This is the word of of Erwin Mayer, who asked this question. He says, will it become a playground for people that will, in a sense, make people feel that there's more democracy, but not lead to a solution? And this, I think, hooks up with some questions about lobbying, to what extent the same corrupting influences that you know some of us find in our politics will corrupt this process as well. And then there's a question of whether, is this just a compromise from direct government or referenda? So these are a few questions I can maybe group together and hear your response, David. If it's only a playground, if it's only about window dressing the current model, then I would agree that there's no point in it. And what I've seen in the past couple of years is indeed, I've, I've known a number of instances where something looked very good on paper, gave participants a very good feeling, and left them with a very bitter aftertaste uh, afterwards. I think if you really want to screw things up, promise citizens that you're going to take them seriously and then do whatever you want. I mean, that's about the best way of making the gap between politicians and citizens even bigger. But that doesn't mean that all forms of deliberative democracy or sortition-based democracy have to end up just as uh, funny games uh, or, or as window dressing for, for anything else. There are sufficient examples of where people's recommendations have been taken seriously. Just a week ago, the very first Citizens' Assembly in German-speaking Belgium handed over its recommendation to the parliament, and it was a wonderful debate. And uh, I'm, I'm, we'll be happy to see the legal outcome of this, but it couldn't have started better than, than it did there. Is this a compromise between an electoral model and uh, representative democracy and direct democracy? You could say it's like a third model. Democracy is, is government on the basis of people's sovereignty. I think there are about three ways to let people speak by voting, by referendums, and by, by deliberative democracy. And some of them can even be combined. The three of them can even be combined. So we don't necessarily have to pick one and avoid the other. I can easily imagine a parliamentary system using a uh, random samples of citizens and leading to a referendum or a preferendum for that matter afterwards. So it's, it's possible to combine direct, indirect and deliberative democracy altogether. And then finally, how about lobbies? How about the, the power of lobbying? There's so much power of uh, organizations and lobbies behind the scenes. Uh, isn't it bigger? with citizens drafted by lot. Luckily, it's not. I think if you are a lobbyist, you are going to have a much harder time dealing with a parliament drafted by lot than a parliament that has been uh, elected traditionally. And I know it because lobbyists have told me so, literally saying uh, with the classical system, I just watch 
who has been winning the election and I know who is the person I'm going to have lunch with for the next four years. Now with a citizens assembly that is changing, that is changing every three months, every four months, that's a lot of lunches to interview people you cannot count on. So I'm sure lobbyists will try to influence it. And I would even say, why not invite people with a certain expertise, which lobbyists are sometimes, you can invite them as an expert, let them have their say, but it won't be their final say, and it won't have any financial consequences. But as you invite academics, as you invite civil society experts, you might as well invite experts from across the board. So rather than do it in hiding, do it in plain sight and make sure that they can be critically heard and, and questioned. But I think the power of lobbies is much smaller. And the reason is a random sample of citizens is a lobby of itself. It's a lobby of the people. We have lobbies for everything. I'm living in Brussels in the European Union. There are lobbies for literally everything, for the chemical industry, for whatever, tobacco industry, whatever. But a sort of lobby of, say, everyday people could be made by creating random samples of them. I mean, we're at the end point, but there's a couple of, a lot, there's like 30 more questions that I have to get through, but we'll, the good news is we have the whole day and I'll keep these questions and I'll keep trying to bring them up throughout the rest of the panels. But one, one last question that I guess I'd like to ask you is someone, uh, Jack Conaway writes, um, Facebook is a kind of sortition and it has brought up things like QAnon and Nazism back. Mm. I guess, is there... Are, are there are there things that disqualify people? I mean, do we have, I mean, are we going to go back to like a, a test of some sort? Are there certain people excluded or not? Everyone I in. think I would use, I don't know the American legislation well enough, but I would use the same sort of criteria for citizens' uh, jury duty and see what, what are, what are the, I think, being, well, minimal, minimal requirements. I would, I would definitely not be in favor right, of that. Right, but in jury yes. we can disqualify jurors. You know, we... The lawyers and judges can ask them questions. And yes. If they don't like them, we can disqualify them. Yes, that's that's something else. No, I, I would not allow for that. Uh, it's just like in Belgium, we have also a jury system in Belgium. You have to be able to read and write. For instance, you should not be family of, of the of the accused. What, what happens if you bring someone in and they're disruptive? Of course, there are procedures to control people. They, they self-monitor, you know, that when, when you have loud mouth in, in the, the plenaries, others are shutting them down. They are massaging their shoulders. They're telling them to calm down. And they have, I mean, you have to trust people, especially for large samples. I think for small ones, sure. You, you know, if it's a small group, you like a jury, I understand the, the need to perhaps uh, be a little bit careful. But like, like large juries, I think it's worth the risk. You shouldn't select and gate the whole process and, and you know, in the French convention, there were homeless people. You know, I think it's important that they're there. Yeah. It's their country too. And so I think that, yes, if, they, if people become troublesome, and, and of course, there should be a code of conduct and there should be a, perhaps an ethics committee that makes sure people are not bribed or something like that. But at the gate, I would not prevent anyone from participating. I do not agree with the parallel between Facebook and a random sample. Me neither. First, because your friends... And the algorithm uh, of Facebook gives you um, the, the very opposite. Rather than talking to people you don't know, you talk to people you only know. And rather than talking to experts you have invited with your panel, you're basically letting yourself influenced by people whose expertise cannot be questioned. So this is a very, very, very different form of convening. Wonderful. So uh, in the interest of giving people their promised break, people can use, get something to eat, to drink, or other things. We're going to break for 12 minutes. 
And we will be back at 11.30 with the second keynote by Aline Landemore. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you in 12 minutes. We hope you have enjoyed the first part in our three-part series, Revitalizing Democracy, with David von Raybrook and Hélène Landemore. If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more, all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.